15 and 60 time back to the conventional format and we're gonna see if for sadly enough i think it might even be the first time this year we can get through all 15 teams in the eastern conference but if we can't one thing i can guarantee you is that we will not edit this out uh but i think we're gonna make it this time uh last time my health was pretty rough but uh, danny is getting over a cold but i think we're gonna be able to do it so we're gonna start with liam's team this week we, we love assigning him to teams that you know we're really interested in that he can dive in on make sure he watches all the games uh and that is the boston celtics so why don't you start with their fundamentals liam sure and for the record uh, i'm i'm betting against us finishing in one podcast uh, just taking a look at this google doc i feel like that's gonna take at least two <laughs> yeah but, let's see how, how many uh, how many we'll pages do we have eight, we have 18 pages right now of information <laughs> in this google doc. yeah so i I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna say no chance on uh one pod but we'll see um so the celtics uh they're four and three since the last 15 and 60 13 and 10 overall seventh in net rating 15th in offense and second in defense and they're projected for 53 wins right now and that's the offensive ratings actually they jumped 10 places in offensive rating since the last 15 and 60 so they've been really on a hot streak lately and there's a couple reasons for that and I think first we'll talk about Gordon Hayward and the game that he had on Saturday he had 30 points nine rebounds eight assists eight of 16 from the field and four threes and he just looked uh probably the best that he's looked in a Celtics uniform he looked really engaged uh defensively he was crashing the offensive glass from the outside obviously he was more involved in the offense he's been that way since he got moved to the bench um and he's had a lot of success there so they're they're using him a lot of horn sets where they place him at the elbow and they enter it to him and then he gets a a pick from the other big and he can come off it in this floor space with shooters and they have the big rolling down and he's always been actually really comfortable in the mid-range that's been an area that utah used him a lot so that's definitely helped he's he's starting to hit threes he doesn't quite have the same athleticism even with the success that he's having uh he's not getting up nearly as high on those lob plays yeah i remember one and he uh went back door it looked like he was gonna go get one and he ended up getting fouled but he clearly like you know it was one that he easily would have put down pre-injury and that game was very encouraging you know eight of 16 from three but four of five on threes a lot of it was you know getting some open catch and shoot looks the assists were more encouraging uh but you know only one of those field goals was at the rim Uh, one of his makes uh, was at the rim in that game so i'm not gonna say that he's back based on that game i mean i think he's finding ways to be more effective but uh, as you mentioned i think it's it is clear that the explosion has not returned you know will it return i i can't say yeah and it's not even just the explosion it's it's just like it feels like his balance like when he was in utah he was one of the strongest like players driving to the hoop he'd usually knock a guy back and then shoot over him with great balance and he just doesn't have that right now but the last six games um coming off the bench he's got a 63 percent true shooting percentage his usage is up and when he was a starter he was had like a 50 percent true shooting percentage so his efficiency is way up and overall i'd say you know a lot of positive signs but you know not quite there yet but um and just touching on some other things from that game Kyrie Irving has been on fire lately he was he was great in that game too and their offensive rating with Kyrie on the floor is 113 and with him off the floor is 101 so he's been a huge part of their offense so without him they got to figure out you know different ways to be efficient I think moving Hayward to the second uh unit has definitely helped with that so they've moved Hayward to the second unit and he has remained there despite the fact that Jalen Brown has been out uh, after 
taking a hard fall i think it was in that minnesota game uh, a couple of games ago and you know they've been starting marcus smart i know they've been playing better offensively although against admittedly you know not the greatest competition in the world they're in the midst of a, a very easy stretch here in december in which i think you know they're always going to get right to some degree uh but would you advocate keeping brown out of the starting lineup i mean that that would be kind of weird to have both he and hayward out of the starting lineup uh and i guess you know who are they they're starting smart and morris now yeah they're starting those two right now and it, it's a really tough question because i think in the short term like right now they they're just better with jalen brown off the floor i think he's sixth percentile in points per shot attempt this season he's, he's the celtics most inefficient player by far even though it feels like to me that gordon and terry rozier have gotten most of the pr for like you know struggling so far this season he's only shooting 26 percent from three but I, that's kind of a tough question just politically with the team uh you know is he going to be okay with that i mean gordon's gotten his money so far already so maybe he's more comfortable coming off the bench but like jalen's out there trying to get paid right now so i don't know would you would you do that um considering the long-term ramifications of moving him to the bench what do you think danny i would worry about the long term with this one i mean jalen brown yeah he's been rough this year but he is still an important part of their future and i don't he might be an important part of the new orleans pelicans future too that might be even a bigger concern yeah that that's an that's another factor in it and the other part with marcus smart as much as i love him as a player i think they need jalen brown to get this offense to the right level like i mean he has to play a whole lot better than he has so far against the best of the best i mean we've seen boston granted that was without Kyrie irving and then you know isaiah was limited the year before we've seen them kind of flatline a little bit offensively in the playoffs and against the raptors and the bucks and the sixers if if they keep playing well they're going to need more scoring on the floor and marcus smart you can i still don't trust the jump shot so i think that he would be exploited on that end of the floor and as great as he is defensively that's harder for them to overcome i I think smart might be the only person in the league who actually trusts his jump shot (laughs) frankly Uh, and that's the only person who matters to be honest yeah well well, brad stevens might have a say in that too but i mean obviously you know the way braun was shooting it even smart at this point is an upgrade and well i think braun has has been solid defensively in his career and and has looked good i mean he's still and he maybe he's a little bit better against some bigger guys he was effectively playing shooting guard most of the time and i think smart is better guarding shooting guard so you know they may well be better at this point in time with the way braun is playing with smart but both to just preserve braun as an asset to keep him engaged and then i think just the upside in terms of the way braun has shot the three the last two years in his career you know i think he does have a more of an upside there there is i mean the fact he's shooting the 26 percent from three though Liam, i mean it's like he this was always kind of the concern for him right and he has shot it well his four and looks much better still not great at the free throw line so you always wondered like you know this isn't that many attempts like the knock at him was he couldn't shoot coming out so you always wonder if maybe uh, this could regress um but what else you got on these guys well i just want to touch on that i think with with marcus smart i mean quietly his usage rate has gone down significantly this season i think he's become much more comfortable with not shooting as many shots and i was surprised in the games i saw that teams actually for for some strange reason they're staying attached to him on the weak side i think just like his reputation as you know somebody that's going to shoot regardless if he's going to make it for some reason has teams guarding him maybe more than they should so i think that's definitely helped and jay um the last three games with jalen that he's been out with injury have been three of the celtics best four offensive outings of the season so i think there's really something to be said for you know having somebody in the lineup that's willing that's willing to not take as many shots so that's definitely been a factor in that and i i guess i wanted to ask you one more thing just kind of more of a theoretical basketball question and it ties in with the celtics so watching horford play i feel like he should be rolling to the basket much more and i feel like baines does that a lot more horford missed a couple 
couple games and the Celtics had good outings and some of that was they were really hot from three so that can certainly be a part of that but Bain I looked up the offensive rating Baines without Horford on the floor is 113 for the season and Horford without Baines on the season is 109 so and it's small enough samples where that could be some noise but do you think there's anything to that with my theory being that Baines is rolling to the hoop much more and he sets screens he's pulling in the weak side the the Celtics aren't getting any paint points in the paint this season so I think obviously Horford's the much better player and Horford's going to be the guy come the playoff time but I think maybe that's more evidence that Horford should be rolling to the hoop more and that would be much more beneficial to the offense overall do, do you agree with any of that or do you just think it's just a t- statistical blip well it, it could be I mean I think we'd have to look m- more closely at the type of shots that they were getting and you know whether there's some luck involved in terms of missing open shots and what the lineups are when those guys are out there and, and stuff like that but I think just as a general philosophical point it's an interesting one Brad Stevens teams have rarely had that guy who rolls to the basket right you remember they had Brandon Wright for a short time a couple of years ago you know didn't really kind of know what to do with him he's more comfortable with the bigs at the elbows facilitating and Horford is one of the best in the league at that now the fact that Horford just isn't hitting his shots is kind of a, a big problem there too you know I mean he, he, I think last I checked he was you know 32 percent from three this year after he shot it really well from three in his Celtics career uh you know I think that he could put more pressure on the defense he is a good decision maker once he gets there rolling to the hoop uh but I'm not sure that Steven's offense is really designed for that that much uh on the other hand you, you know because this team doesn't put pressure on the rim and because they usually have you know four guys already around on the arc if you add a fifth guy there you know we always talk about having spacing but spacing in terms of just having too many guys around the arc sometimes can be an issue too right if you especially if you're on the weak side you know there's only so much room there you can have guys stunting you can have one guy guarding two people especially if it's on the weak side if you have five guys all around the arc all those guys are closer to one another so it's not it's not cut and dried at all the other thing too is that we've seen pick and pop bigs have the best effect in terms of helping point guards who really just love to get downhill and love getting all the way to the basket and you know the Celtics don't really have players like that Irving is not he likes to pull up in mid-range a lot he likes to go iso he's not just so fast in a straight line at least at this point in his career anymore where he's just gonna blow past you to the hoop and just like force an emergency help so they don't really have a, a guy like that I mean I think actually Brown is probably their number one guy perhaps Tatum as well who's really gonna just blow to the basket and then it's nice to not have that guy rolling to the rim where there there can be help you know making the big be stuck to him it can open things up for those guys but they haven't really had that necessarily this year either so no i, I think there, there's a lot of interesting philosophies to talk about here i mean i don't think we have enough information to come to a conclusion yet but maybe that's something to keep our eye on with this team in general uh, anything else that popped out uh, to you uh, about them uh, before we uh, move on to the hawks Oh, well, that was the main stuff. I do want to respond to that and that I, I do agree with you that when you have five guys on the perimeter like that, those gaps become a lot more clogged when it comes to beating the initial line of defense. And like you said, this, especially their personnel like Tatum and Hayward aren't exactly like blow-by speed guys, and they're probably more adept at finishing over length in the paint with their size. So I think it would be better to have maybe a four-out, one-out, you know, one-in-the-middle look for them finishing because Tatum isn't exactly, and that, this was, I don't know, a criticism of mine uh, with him 
coming out of the draft. Like he, he doesn't have like that blow by first step. And he, that's a lot of the reason that he's settling for the mid Rangers. I mean, I think some people say it's just decision making, but part of that's also like skill level. Like he isn't going to create those shots in ISO. So I think having a guy rolling to the hoop would also help with that. But uh, yeah, I, I'll probably cut myself off there if you're trying to finish this pod in uh, one, one episode. So um, you can go ahead and go to yeah, the next yeah, team. Yeah. If, if we fall one team short, uh, I could blame you for, for going, <laughs> going too long here. Uh, let's move on to Boston now they sit at five and 18 two and five since the, the last 15 and 60 their negative 12.3 net rating and non-garbage time per cleaning the glass is a distant 30th in the nba also ranking a distant 30th with a exactly one point per possession offensive rating their defensive rating uh, much better 25th they project for 21 wins which would be 15th in the eastern conference uh, and yeah. it would be lo- and worst in the league for those who are interested in that that they would the 538 projections have them at 21 then cleveland and phoenix at 23 yeah, the, the hawks of front office is uh is interested in that uh they are anything to uh you want to just kind of catch up on here just uh, some small general observations before we want to talk about john collins but let's uh let's get into just kind of up to date just some news on this team well jeremy lynn they missed him over the last couple of games just i mean capable point guard play is so important around the league including his absence last year with the brooklyn nets same thing with the hawks but he yeah. should be back on Monday. Yeah. They they host the Golden State Warriors. By the way, I mean, Lynn, stats have been awesome this year. I mean, you remember he, he was oh, yeah. so bad in the beginning of the year. He was like getting benched for no point guard units with DeAndre Pembry and, and Kent Bazemore. He's got 65% true shooting and 23% usage this year. I mean, that's that's uh, fantastic. Still, in some ways, that makes, uh, and this is age 30 season, you know, we'll see if that continues. getting to the foul line at a ridiculous rate right now. Uh, 42% free throw rate and for a high volume guy uh, that's outstanding he's also taking 40% of his shots uh, from three to put those in perspective against his uh, career we could probably throw out the Brooklyn years go back to that last year in Charlotte where he, he was playing as a, a combo guard off the bench for them and he was 34% from three this uh, la- that year this year he's at 42% so uh, you know that's not going to continue he's, uh, he you can pinch me uh if we I I wake up at the end of the season and he's over 40% from three, you know, unless he gets hurt or something. I mean, he's got that's uh, those caveats aside, but he's always done a decent job of getting to the foul line. Yeah, actually, you know what? He was better at that than I thought. This is actually pretty standard for him that that 40% free throw rate. Uh, But the usage is a little bit higher. So that part of it actually is not that surprising. The three point attempt rate of 40% is surprising. And then another huge thing is the way he's shooting right now some of that's not going to sustain on twos he's well over 50 percent. he shot 45 percent on twos uh, his last healthy year and he's at 57 percent now and like on long twos he, he's well over 50 percent uh well over 50 percent on floaters so uh, this performance is going to regress it's been a lot of hot shooting you know I, I, but i think even if he could get back to equaling where he was uh, that year in Charlotte, given he's coming off the torn patellar tendon, you know, I think he could be a valuable player. And certainly, you know, he's not going to play a lot of minutes on this Hawks team. They are keeping everyone under 30 minutes a game, in part because no one on this team is that good. But we'll see if he's a trade candidate. I do think that, you know, he's not going to get a first rounder by himself, but, you know, maybe there could be a salary relief team that might want to pick him up. Uh, more likely, though, that maybe that could even be a second rounder type of thing. I, I guess, Cal, uh, what, what do you think? I mean, like, what? let's say he keeps playing, you know, at about the, the level 
level I'm talking about where in that year in Charlotte. Do you think they could get anything substantial for him at all? Not unless they're going to take on significant salary, which they could do. The Hawks have the flexibility moving forward to just take on some money if they want to. And I believe that it might be better considering how many teams are going to have cap space next summer for some teams to bite that bullet now. I've argued for that for Cleveland. I will argue for it for Atlanta as well. And so Lynn would provide some value. So they're going to, basically what they're hoping for is a team that wants both those things, that an upgraded backup one and a little bit of relief. So maybe that happens. Yeah, maybe they could get a decent second. You know, 45 is our dividing line. Something in the, you know, in that range would probably be doable because it's hard to find capable backups on the buyout market. That's what makes it so different from centers. And so, and he's meaningfully better than the guys that I would expect to be there. So that's a pretty good selling point. And his contract is high. So there will also be some people who just wait to see if he hits the buyout market. And and it's possible that he'll want to choose his destination too. But the Hawks, if they can get an asset, they'll, they'll take it. Orlando is kind of the natural fit there, except for what's going to go back. Mozgov is really their dead salary, but the Hawks aren't going to want to take that on. That'd be amazing if the Hawks got Mozgov back again. <laughs> Wait, did they ever have him? Didn't they? No, I think they've had all the other bad backup centers. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was I was, I was, thinking that like... No, they're completing yeah. like Dwight Howard, Dwight Howard bingo, like with all these, all yeah. these guys like him and Mozgov, they'll get Biombo in a couple of years. They'll all just all end up playing for every yeah, game. Yeah, I think I, I was forgetting the... I thought for some reason that the mozgov Biombo trade like involved the Hawks somehow, but now it it's should, just spiritually, spiritually, it did. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so go ahead. A couple other quick things we should mention. So Bembry, you know, DeAndre Bembry, his shot is looking better to me. He's still, though, at 32% from three, which is not what you would like for a guy who is, you know, shooting provides a lot of value below 50% true shooting, which is also not great. So they did pick up his final year option. And yeah. I mean, for the Hawks, I think he's not? shown it's enough to deal. justify that. Yeah, I would so too. Far. But yeah, it's one of those oh, things absolutely. where you're like, oh man, he really looks better than he looked on the statue. It's like, ah, well, he may look better, but the results uh, have not been there. Uh, and he's 24 already uh, this year too. Um, Trey Young, he's down to 25% from three. I mean, that's really rough. And then uh, much was being made of how well he was finishing around the rim. That's down as well into the low 50s now. Um, and the floaters haven't dropped really. He's at 37% on floaters. So the ball's just not going in the basket for him. He's shown wonderful vision. I mean, that's been the one thing we've really liked the most. And he's taking some deep attempts, but I don't, you know, I don't really blame the shot selection for him shooting 25% right now. I mean, he's not even hitting like his open shots really that much either. So uh, that'll be something to monitor. I mean, we we said even i liked him more than you but i think we both liked him that this season he was going to suck this year uh that has been the case he's i think last in the nba in defensive rpm as we talked about john collins uh, has returned uh playing almost exclusively at power forward as you would have guessed only seven percent of his minutes at center so far so that's like you know 15 minutes or so uh shooting at the rim right where it's supposed to be 72 percent and 62 percent true shooting overall and that's despite the fact that the jumper has not been going down for him that looked pretty good when he played you know the game and a half in summer league before he got shut down in the too good for summer league category that uh, a lot of second year guys get but and he has been aggressive shooting the three but it hasn't looked quite as smooth as i remember from the summer and he's had some real bad misses a lot of them going to the left um he's putting up big numbers as the role man in pick and roll right now and with trey young setting him up that's not a surprise in particular uh he's looked really good slipping to the rim and you know he's more mobile than a lot of guys who set pick and rolls and, and he's got a lot of explosiveness so and one thing i note too is that a lot of times when guys slip screens the point guard just doesn't have the vision to find him and there's too much pressure or whatever like at 
Atlanta's point guards are, are capable of doing that and so I, I think that's uh and then once he gets going towards the room with the head of steam I mean, he's just deadly when he slips the screen 17 points on 10 possessions so it's basically an automatic bucket when they get him the ball on the move in those situations going towards the rim uh and almost no pick and pop for him which you know you'd like to see that as part of his game eventually but i think he's gonna be you know he's got to knock down some spot up threes first before you get into those more advanced ones um any observation that you had on him yeah i, I want to watch more of collins to make any definitive pronouncements and he is playing more at the four than in prior years just as a share of his minutes and that, we'll see how that changes but atlanta has way more centers than power forwards at this moment so it kind of makes sense with their roster but his block rate is really down this year he's you know i think it's like about a third of what it was last year steal rate similar story and again we're dealing with small sample size he's only been back for a little while now but it's not like he was this great defender it was that he had certain elements you know that he did pretty well like being aggressive as block shot shot blocker he's bouncy and everything else like that but i want to i want to keep an eye on that because i mean i wrote for the athletic before the start of the season that one of the big questions for them was what is john collins position offensively and defensively and i hope that they get enough of a sample to have an idea of that but he needs to be capable defensively at whatever position it's going to be if he is a part of their you know significant feature if he's somebody that you're thinking about when you sign players and when you draft players and he doesn't have to be they can have a more open canvas but defense is an important part of that calculation yeah and you'll see this sometimes with young players and collins is one of them where they come into the league making great energy plays and you're kind of like oh man like when this guy increases his skill level like he's going to be a monster but the guys you know want to increase their skill level and want to become more of an offensive player and you can kind of see guys i'm not saying this is necessarily happening with collins very early on in his season but just as a general proposition you can see guys sometimes just become too focused on the stuff that they're working to improve and forget what it was that made them be so awesome in the first place speaking of awesome my Wi-Fi is awesome because I have the Eero home Wi-Fi system. I'm guessing I probably rely on my Wi-Fi more than just about anybody with us doing the NBA cast, recording this podcast. We do it all remotely, watch a, a ton of video all over the house too. I, sometimes I just get sick of looking at my computer in my office. I want to bring my laptop and sit on a more comfortable couch downstairs and I need uh, a lot of power to do that. And that's what Eero gives me. And when you add Eero Plus, you can get total network protection. It's got the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network they check the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats as far as i know nba.com cleaning the glass and synergy uh, are not in that database those are the, the only websites I go to, basically, and Twitter, I suppose, too. Uh, and uh, Eero Plus also prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites uh, without slowing anything down. And if you have kids, they tag sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you can choose what your kids can and can't visit right from the Eero app. And this is really cool, too. They have ad blocking that gets rid of annoying ads and pop-ups on all your devices. So even if it's your mobile phone, which really ad blockers don't seem to work on very well, uh, Eero can help out with that as well so with Eero you'll never have to think about Wi-Fi again you can get a hundred dollars off the Eero base unit and two beacons package so it actually will extend Wi-Fi all over your house and then you also get a year a hundred dollars off a year of Eero plus so it's a hundred dollars off that Eero base unit and two beacons package and the year of Eero plus you visit Eero.com that's e-e-r-o.com slash capspace and enter the code capspace at checkout easy to capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's Eero e-e-r-o.com slash capspace and then enter that capspace code and let them know that you came from us let's turn to Brooklyn now Danny the Nets are 8 and 16 a woeful 
one in six since the last time we covered them in a 15 and 60. 22nd in net rating, negative 2.9. 17th in offense, 20th in defense, 538 projects them to win 33 games, which would be 11th in the West. And one injury note, Joe Harris has missed their last two games and he is questionable for Monday. And I really do think that they've missed him just having a capable, reliable shooter. And it's put a little bit more strain on their rotational depth. They've been, I mean, Damari Carroll played, I think it was like 36 minutes in one of their games that I watched recently. And that's a lot of Damari Carroll. I mean, he been so they just have had to go a little bit more. But the main thing I wanted to focus on for them is just this massive, I mean, we've talked about with Charlotte so much this season, their struggles in close games. Yeah. And you saw this game. uh, I missed it because I was at the the Lakers Mavs game. Uh, They just had an epic collapse uh, on Friday night against Memphis. Yeah, so they were up seven points with about 36 seconds to go. I actually sent out a tweet because D'Angelo Russell had a a smart steal off of Marcus Holt outlet pass, and I'm like, that sealed the win. Apparently not, because they gave up. I mean, the way this happened was so bad. So you're up up seven with 36 seconds to go, and they fouled Jaron Jackson for a four-point play. Then they turned the ball over. It was kind of one of those. Both guys touched it, but then they reviewed it, and it was it touched. I think it was Didwitty last. Then Memphis gets the ball back, gets another Jaron Jackson three, I believe, and then Brooklyn has a chance to to win the game. Didwitty drives. They don't call a foul, and they end. You know, both teams have chances to win over the course of the two overtimes, and Memphis ends up pulling it out. And yeah, I mean, Brooklyn has already played fourteen close games, and they're four close games defined by NBA.com as games that are with five points or closer within the last five minutes and they are four and ten in those games and four and ten is bad enough but their net rating is negative 24 basically and that is the second weakest in the league yeah that's really rough and if you look at the standings obviously they lost Levert, so it's going to be tough for them going forward but this last brutal stretch they're seven and ten coming in now they're winning only a third of their games they're eight games under 500 you know even if they go 500 the rest of the way you know that's going to put them at 37 wins wins even in this year's east that's probably not going to get you there especially with you know charlotte and detroit at least playing reasonably well so that they may point to uh, some of these early season struggles uh, as why they haven't made the playoffs you want to talk a little bit more about how uh, d'angelo russell is playing yeah i mean so d'angelo russell he is shooting about 35 percent on threes this year and something i want to look at i do this a lot with guys who have the ball in their hands significantly is how their proportion of three pointers is split between pull up and catch and shoot and almost everybody shoots better on catch and shoot not a big surprise you get your feet under you it's easier to get into rhythm all those sorts of things and this year d'angelo russell has a part of why he's shooting a lot better from three this year is because even though his proportion is similar he's doing a better job of making his pull-up threes and we obviously don't know if that's going to continue where it's going to go so right now he's shooting 3.5 catch and shoots at 37 percent and 3.2 pull-ups at 33 percent per game and that 33 i think was like 27 percent last year so that's a that's a lot better and when you look at his career, it seems more likely that his last year, he was way worse, that he's going to be somewhere, at least in the current term of in the around the 35, 37% three-point shooting range. That's where he was early in his career as a Laker. And you can be that type of guy. But something that was really shocking to me, because I, I looked at his numbers and he's shooting, I think it's about, I think 
11.5 three-pointers per 100 possessions. And I like using that now instead of minutes played because it, it calibrates off a couple of different issues. And that is an incredibly high rate for a guy who shoots 35% from three. Now, the math, if you shoot 35%, it's basically a point per possession. It's 1.05. And that's, you know, it's not terrible. It's for half for half court offense if you're thinking of it as half court offense. But basically, out of the last two years, so not the last two full seasons, 38 only 38 players have shot his rate of three-point attempts or above, and 35% is in the bottom quarter for that group. You have a lot of guys like, you know, Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, and all that. And then he's more in the range of like the Mirza Toledovich's and people were in that range. But I think the takeaway there is not that he's shooting too much. It's that I think other people should shoot more because, I mean, offense is bogged down and everything else. Now, he's on the lower edge of it, I think, anyway, but it was something I found interesting. Yeah, and it's not like, especially with Levert out, that he's like taking shots out of the hands of other players on this team, and they are very right. short on creators. You know, that 35%, I mean, I, and I'm not saying you're implying this, but certainly I'm not saying he's taking like bad shots this year. I think it's important that he takes those because, you know, other than Dinwiddie, I mean, who else is going to on this team? Um, what I looked at is some really interesting numbers related to their defense. And there is some indication here that their defense could actually be even a little bit better than it has been at 20th, which, you know, if you look at their personnel, I think that's about where they'd be, you'd think they'd be. So they allow the second highest percentage of possessions as finished by a pick and roll ball handler. So they play usually pretty conventional pick and roll defense when the center is involved. You know, we haven't seen that much from Jared Allen switching out on the perimeter. Uh, But, and usually the league average on those plays is pretty low, right? I mean, when you think of those kind of self-created plays, ISOs, pick and roll bell handler, post-ups, you know, those will be usually between 0.8 and 0.9 points per possession, which, you know, those are all half court possessions. They're self-created. They're usually not that efficient. The Nets are allowing 1.01 points per possession on those plays. And remember, these are all half court plays where generally even in this environment you're efficiency is going to be below a point per possession because remember this is not including offensive rebounds and even teams that get 20 percent of offensive rebounds if you score on 50 percent of those you know that that's kind of how you get up to over a point per possession is getting some offensive rebounds but on your initial shot in half court offense this is what we're talking about here so that's that's really rough related to that the nets are allowing 1.03 points per possession on jumpers off the dribble and like with them having the second highest percentage of pick and roll ball handler shots in the nba they force the most shots as jumpers off the dribbles 26.5 percent of opponents possessions and that's again i think they're just getting really unlucky on opponent jumpers off the dribble if you go back to last year they were much more in line with the rest of the league 0.88 points per possession on those plays so you'd be hard pressed to convince me that there's something about their the way they're defending that's just making them give up more than a point per possession on jumpers off the dribble but it's also very interesting just structurally with their defense and I think next time I watch them, I'm going to try to dig into this a little bit more. They led the league last year as well with 26.5% of opponents' possessions being off the dribble jump shots. And that was 2.6% higher than any team. You know, that, that's a huge gap. So clearly their goal is to force those shots. And, you know, that's a good thing. Those are inefficient shots. Those are the shots you want opponents taking because they also allow the fewest percentage of opponents catch and shoot possessions in the NBA. Only 25, 20.5% of opponents 
Clint's possessions take place as catch and shoots. So it's kind of too bad. I mean, we've seen for a while now, this is something you've talked a lot about, how the Nets force the right shots and take the right shots, but on offense, they just haven't converted them that well. And then especially on defense, it seems like especially this year, they're just getting unlucky. So I, I think their defense, we could see it improve uh, this season. Uh, should we move on to the 11 and 12 Charlotte Hornets? Yeah, let's do it. So the Hornets are four and four since the last 15 and 60. They're still a ridiculously strong eighth in net rating plus 4.2, sixth in offense, 14th in defense, and 538 projects them to win 40 games, which would be the seventh seed in the East because you know, the last two seeds are below 500 there. And I think the place to start is that Charlotte was actually able to start the same five guys for the first 22 games of the season, which is fantastic. You want every team to be healthy. And then they had to change it up due to Cody Zeller's rib injury. He missed their game against New Orleans. And then the they've had a bunch of injuries in the second unit. So not to say they've been totally healthy, but they, they haven't been impacted in the same way. But then they had a couple of things that are concerning in that game against New Orleans. Kemba Walker rolled his ankle early and it was my secondary game, but he didn't look right to me. I was wondering if he was going to come back at all. There was a weird thing where he was on the floor for a little while and for a sprained ankle that doesn't happen all the time, but he still played 33 minutes and he didn't have a great night by his standards. And for me, it was more of the eye test. He just didn't look all the way there for me. But then the, the bigger one is that Marvin Williams left in the second quarter due to a strained shoulder and left the arena in a sling. And Marvin Williams is one of those players. Yes, they did get MKG back recently, but they don't have a ton of great replacements for him just with what Marvin Williams brings to the table. So sounds like it might be Miles Bridges if he has to miss time that's going to start in his stead. Different strengths and weaknesses, obviously, with those two guys. So they're going to have to make it work. And one of the other interesting developments of this season is that they've already had a lot of turnover in their center rotation even before the Zeller injury yeah and you know it's unclear if he experienced a setback before the game and on November 21st Frank Kaminsky actually took over the backup center minutes and Willie Hernan Gomez has played two minutes in six games before they started him with Zeller out and it hasn't gone terribly you know Frank Kaminsky is playing about 18 minutes a game and he has a 7.6 net rating that's actually positive Frank Kaminsky and positive net rating in the same sentence uh you know not doing a ton i think you know he does space the floor he has that reputation as a shooter he's hitting 33 percent. so you know over the course of his career he's had some hot streaks but generally he's been around you know that 33 35 percent area and so it'll be interesting if zeller is going to miss time you know I, I thought Hernan gomez had played capably in the games i'd i'd seen him perhaps you know it, there's always a danger of all right you know you see I mean, we're never going to see more than probably 30 percent of most teams games and so you know you see a couple of good games by a guy and then it's like why is he out of the rotation well you know maybe he just wasn't playing well in the other games uh, but if any charlotte watchers uh, want to tweet me on on that one at nate duncan nba about why Hernan gomez lost his rotation spot I, i'd be interested to know but yeah i think it, there'll be a chance uh, for i mean i think he's probably a better offensive player than zeller is you know at least in terms of his finishing around the rim zeller is a really good screener you know maybe Hernan gomez isn't quite as good at, at that but you're going to give something back defensively and you know this team is 14th in defensive rating but there are some indicators and their opponent's shooting numbers that that uh, might be a little bit of smoke and mirrors so uh, we've got a little more time here on the hornets well can i say one quirky stat with them? oh yeah yeah sir i'm gonna say it and then i'm gonna immediately undercut it because that's what happens <laughs> here so michael kid gilchrist has made a three-pointer in three of his four games since returning which is great and you're like oh, oh my god michael kid gilchrist is doing that he is four of ten on the season so that's kind of cool i'm happy for him that he's taking and you know he's been taking about one three in those games and making one three in those games but still i guess that he's taking them is, is something good oh oh one other thing i want to mention going back to that their, their loss on sunday to the pelicans for marvin
Griffin, it was because of his injury. And for the other ones, it was other issues. But none of their starting frontcourt players, meaning three, four, or five, played more than 14 minutes in the game against New Orleans. By the way, MKG coming into today, taking 70% of his three-pointers. I guess that would be seven out of 10 uh, from the corners. So it's not like he's stretching out that far. I mean, it's going to take a long time, I think, before we're going to be a believer in that three-point game from him. So let's say that Williams has to miss some time here. I mean, how is that going to affect their front court rotation? I mean, it seems like they're going to start bridges. That would leave them with a Batum bridges front court. I mean, that's awful small. I think they're probably, you know, I think the Kid Gilchrist Kaminsky pairing on the second unit at the four and five is one that makes sense with Kid Gilchrist limited shooting. And, you know, Kaminsky is probably still the best spacer among their fives. So, I mean, is Miles Bridges just going to play 32 minutes a game at power forward right now? You know, I, I'm not sure that there's really much other choice. I mean, maybe you'll see more of Kid Gilchrist, but I really don't think you know, that they've gone away from Kid Gilchrist in the starting lineup, you know, for a very good reason here, which is, you know, with him around Kemba Walker pick and rolls, you know, the spacing just doesn't work. Agreed. And so they're going to have to figure these things out. Also, it was nice. I think Devontae Graham had a career high in one of their games over the weekend. I don't remember if it was Sunday or if it was earlier, but I, I still like him. I think that there's a place for him, but Tony Parker has played well enough that he will be marginalized when they're full strength or close to it this season. Yeah, and Bridges is someone we're probably overdue for a breakdown on. But yeah. one thing I, I've really liked about him, 63% from two, and he's got 23 dunks already this year. So he, he is really, despite the fact that he doesn't have the biggest wingspan, he is strong and he has been effective as a finisher this season. He's shooting, oh baby, uh, according to basketball reference, which inflates it a little bit more than like cleaning the glass NBA.com because I think it's zero to three feet instead of zero to four but uh within three feet bridges is shooting 84 percent, and he is uh under he's right about 20 percent on twos outside of the restricted area but he's at least avoiding those shots well enough to shoot 62 percent from the field Let's jump to the Chicago Bulls. Bulls are 5-19, and 1-6 and six since last time we did this. They're 29th in net rating. 10.5, negative 10.5 is, is rough, but you know, not horrendous. And one thing that's really surprising with them, they're 29th in offense and 23rd in defense. A lot of that is just because they have some of these lineups that are out there that just absolutely cannot score. And those things will change a little bit. We're still a little bit away from Chris Dunn and Bobby Portis coming back, but Lowry Markinen is back. And we also got something that was exciting was Wendell Carter had a 28 point game it was in a loss but that's okay and he actually after the game talked about how he's like i'd rather score fewer points and win but that's not a choice you can necessarily make on the chicago bulls right now um but <laughs> let's let's do i haven't watched a ton of them yet other than watching all of his shots from this game but i want to see if you have any thoughts on like marketing and how this front court is going to balance out yeah he did come off the bench and actually closed the game playing with the third stringers because they were just getting blown out so badly he'll get back to starting Fred Hoiberg saying that he they're going to try to work Jabari Parker back in at the three. I and mean, you remember in preseason, and remember this is in preseason when Markkinen was already out, they just moved away from Parker at the three. But, you know, they had Bobby Portis and moved him into the starting lineup and moved Parker to the bench for, well, we can talk a little bit more about his performance in a bit. But Parker at the three is going to be dicey defensively, to be sure. I mean, he's not shooting the ball amazingly well, but the hope is that the shooting of Markinen, you know, Carter can stretch it a little bit that you just between those three guys, you can get enough shooting. Now, one thing that you can at least say, although the Bulls point guard play has not been amazing, although 
although Ryan Archdiakono, I'll, I'll apologize again for not saying uh, for saying that he wasn't an NBA player and they shouldn't give him a guaranteed contract, considering that he had like a, a twenty point game and he's been uh, putting up some assist numbers and playing hard. He's definitely has looked like an NBA player, if not you know a starting quality of player, which he has moved into as a the campaign experiment finally mercifully appears to be over, but if you're going to take Justin Holiday out of the rotation at the three and start Parker, you're, that's a shooting down. Great Holiday has been shooting it well. And now you're also going to throw Chris Dunn in there, who, while a better player and certainly better defensively than the guys they've been using, is a, a worse shooter. Now you're looking at... A, a unit that could be a lot less than the sum of its parts uh, offensively, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you could be running into a lineup, depending on how they want to structure this, where two of their three best shooters are their four and their five, which is unusual. And I mean, Carter hasn't taken a lot of threes. He's only hit 21% of them. But actually, uh, that's a good lead into to ha- how his game was. It was it was really interesting because a lot of his second half scoring was on pick and rolls with Levine. Most of that was rolling to the basket, a couple of pick and pops. And Wendell Carter absolutely just was great from floater range. And that's not just the numbers, the six for nine. He has this running floater, which is a shot that I generally don't like because it's a hard shot to make consistently and I mean Carter's at 49% from from that range this year but it does look for whatever reason it looks better coming off his hands than most guys I don't know if it's that he has really good touch from that range if he has experience with it trying to lob it over because the other defender was guarding Marvin Bagley last year at Duke whatever it was like that but still I mean it was it looked good there he only took three shots beyond 15 feet made the two two pointers missed the three but I really like the mechanics on his jump shot that's something I remember going back to a nations when we saw him i just thought he had a good looking jump shot and my favorite thing about the game was that and there were some exceptions later but for the most part in the early section he was too hesitant and you know when somebody was there blake griffin andre drummond he was double clutching he was trying avoiding the contact and he just started getting better at understanding where the guy was and just doing his thing so sometimes that was trying a running hook shot he had a couple of those sometimes it was you know moving the guy a little bit more before he took the shot and that's one of the developmental areas is for a young big man is understanding how to pick your spots, how to get to where you need to go. And then the part that will come along with that, he had one bad play later in the game where he, he should have passed it out, is that when you don't have that, assuming there's still at least some time on the shot clock, to just give it to somebody else and see what they can do. And when you have Zach Levine on your team, that's an easy way to, to go out on that possession. He had one where he, he double clutched and then threw up just some crap against Drummond and missed badly, as often happens there. But I did like the offensive potential there. I've, I've, I've always seen him as a better defender than offensive player like going back then but he had the tools to kind of be a little bit more scalable to have some potential there and i still believe in all of that Jabari Tarker getting some positive press. Uh, his stooge, uh, Gary Werfel, saying that he's playing at an all-star level. Uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, go quite that far. Uh, but, you know, he's put up some nice averages, you know, averaging around 20 points and seven rebounds in his last six or seven games. But even if you split it out into October and November, the, the big difference overall is just simply that he's getting more minutes and he's also scoring a little bit at the foul line. He's actually shooting worse from three. He's right around 30% from three for the season and when you say he's getting more free throw attempts i mean that's like one more per game he's only at 3.6 and you really either he's got to get to the foul line more or he's going to have to shoot more threes and hit and hit the three better to really be that kind of instant offense efficient guy that you would hope so it's just the only 25 percent usage is not that high when you consider the lack of threats that they've had going forward here in, in november and so but he's not doesn't really seem like the kind of guy other than you know his early years in milwaukee 
you would love to kind of troll out on the baseline and and get up for some dunks get out in transition but yeah i don't know that we're going to see a ton of that from him in this bulls offense particularly if he's coming off the bench so I don't think that this recent stretch is long enough for us to really get excited or change our opinion of of what he's doing. And he still is at the lowest efficiency of his career. You know, they have played a little bit better offense with him on the floor. Not a surprise when you know Levine is basically the only other guy who can create on this team with some of the injuries that they've had. But you know, still a 102 offensive rating is not amazing. And even on the long twos that he's taking, I mean, he's he's got to get better shooting that shot as well. I mean, even though those aren't efficient shots, you know, he's hitting them at, at a below league average rate. And so I think I think he can be better than that. You know, I think he can create separation and eventually be good at that shot. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, we'll never know what he could have been had it not been for the two ACL tears. But he has a very long way to go, even with this recent surge, to be a particularly effective player. Let's move on to the cleveland cavaliers four and 18 they've shown some signs of life but still a negative 8.6 net rating that's 27th in the nba they have the 27th ranked offense at 106.2 despite having a few performances where they've gotten crazy on long twos recently and looked a little better and then their defense is a putrid 30th in the league they project for 23 wins two ahead of the atlanta hawks for 14th in the conference uh, Alec Burks is in the rotation already with David Nwaba still out and J.R. Smith voluntarily out uh so he's been averaging 25 minutes in his two games and Love is at least no longer wearing a walking boot the only reason to rush him back right now is to prove that he's healthy at the trade deadline and not a surprise but Chris Fedor had an article for cleveland.com where he mentioned that Love the intention was for him to be the offensive hub this season and so that does I mean it all their talent is also part of the reason why this has been so disjointed but there isn't anybody on the team who can replicate what he does so you can't really do anything with that and you had the idea this was actually something we had talked about doing a few weeks ago of going through whether the Cavs are in a better or worse position now than they were when LeBron left the last time so that was you know 2010 basically 2010 versus 2018. Yeah, and we concluded, we just compared the rosters at the time. We concluded that this team was a, a more talented roster. I would just say they're probably much better off now. I mean, they have a guy who was the number eight pick. I mean, for the whole reason they never didn't trade that number eight pick to get more help for LeBron was they didn't want to be in that same situation that they were last time. I mean, they really were bereft of young time. I mean, their best prospect we went through it was like J.J. Hickson and, you know, Bo- Booby Gibson, uh, their best player in theory was uh, uh, Mo Williams so they still have Love who was an all-star last year the the contract that he's on maybe you know uh, I think after this injury part of the reason they supposedly signed him to that contract is that they wanted him to be worth more in trade but it's a possibility that he might have just been worth more in trade as an expiring contract this year than with 30 million a season for four years after this uh, uh especially after suffering this injury and having the team fall apart uh what is the the difference between their situation right now in terms of uh draft picks cleveland's situation actually inspired one of the big changes in the cba in the 2011 cba because lebron and bosch were both able to get more money by structuring those deals as sign-in trades and the rest of the league thought that wasn't good and cleveland got two first round picks in that deal they both both ended up not being particularly good because Miami was a great team and they ended up I'm not going to go through the full path I went down the rabbit hole because I'm me and but the 2013 pick ended up going to the Lakers and then being in the Steve Nash trade and then 
the 2015 one was in the Kevin Love trade. So obviously that yielded some real fruit. But both at that time and then later that like over the course of that first season, Cleveland benefited a lot from a a few different things that I would not expect to see replicated this time. So one, they benefited from, you could make an argument that it's the single stupidest trade in modern NBA history because the Clippers traded Baron Davis away to Cleveland, who took on the money. Again, credit to Dan Gilbert for his willingness to spend. But the problem was it was like a few months before the amnesty because of the new CBA and everybody knew there was going to be an amnesty and the Clippers didn't, even though they had the leverage to, decided not to put any protection on the pick because they they were, you know, I think there were something like the eighth worst record. Then it jumped to number one and that's how the Cavs got Kyrie Irving. So I don't expect anything like that to happen again. Well, well but, and then but the other why thing, would, I mean, Donald Sterling would still have to pay him. He's not going to amnesty him. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, another reason why ownership is the greatest competitive advantage in the NBA. And something else that, I mean, lot, everybody I mean, who's followed the league long enough knows that Cleveland benefited from lottery luck last time. They got those three number one overall selections. But I was thinking about it and realized that Cleveland is also, I mean, yeah, they're probably not going to have that look again because nobody would. But lottery reform, I thought it was going to help them because they were, you know, they have Kevin Love, they have Larry Nance, depending on what the, you know, Tristan and some of the other rotation guys do. They had some capable players that they would benefit from lottery reform because maybe they had like the seventh or eighth worst record. Now they might actually lose out on lottery from lottery reform because if they're one of the four, four or five worst teams, their odds actually go down and that hurts it as well. So not only are you, you're going against, you're comparing against an unrealistic standard, but you're doing it in a very different landscape. And that is a negative as well. So I agree with you that their talent is better and their books. I mean, I'm sure some people could go, oh my God, look at all the money they have spent. But a lot of that is going to clear off next year so that they're not that bad. I mean, I think like 35 million for Love and Nance, which isn't great. Actually, I think it's 40 million, but they'll still have enough to do what they're going to do. They just won't have as many bites at the apple as they did last time. Yeah. And also the willingness to take on bad money when the cap was static and contracts were longer was a more powerful tool back then. I mean, obviously, you know, we saw what they got for taking on Davis, for example, uh, than it will be this time around when more teams have flexibility. And, you know, just generally, I think, you know, teams are not willing to give up teams value draft picks more highly but they definitely do have more talent on the team right now and sexton is a decent prospect like he could be a starter there for a long time he's a long way away from being an effective player but and i wouldn't even you know there aren't really any good point guards in this draft so it's likely he'll at least you know they're not going to draft over the top of him no matter how he plays the rest of the year so I'd say they're probably better off now uh, than they were back then if you really look at at what their roster was and their draft going forward. But if you want to say compare where they'll be I mean, I think an interesting question is, you know, four years from now, will they be in a better situation than they were before LeBron came back? You know, I think they were 33 and 49. Are they going to have a better record than that in the 2021-22 season? You know, I think they, they could be right around that level. Also depends, you know, if they try to spend and bring in more free agents than they would have back then. But, you know, I, I, it's going to be a very, very long road back and there is no LeBron James and there's unlikely to be three lottery picks in four years as a result. I haven't counted the years yet, but it would be way too funny if that was the year that Bronny is, is draft eligible. <laughs> yeah, well, he'll, he'll go to his hometown uh, LA team. 
yeah also shout out to tristan thompson one cav who uh, is toiling in obscurity he's actually having a better season this year 18 percent offensive rebounds uh and that's especially impressive when you consider the number of long twos this team's uh, attempts where you know you're not really breaking down the defense threes getting to the rim the defense is generally be more in flux than when you're taking a long two and so when you consider that he despite how good of an offensive rebounder he has been at, at times in his career you know his career average is around 13 percent, so four percent higher offensive rebounding that's one of the, the top in the league uh his usage is up five percent from where it was the last couple of years there's only 12 percent obviously with lebron james on the team that's going to be a little bit lower and then uh his true shooting is down at 54 percent part of the reason why his usage is up is he's getting the off- offensive rebounds and going for putbacks but you know he has not been particularly efficient and when you consider his shot profile 54 percent true shooting is not great and uh what he once was uh, on defense uh, that seems really to have waned as really like a a very solid switch guy as mentioned there uh 30th in the nba in defense so he has not been able to have much of an effect there all right, Danny, what's the latest on the Detroit Pistons? Uh, Pistons are doing really well. They are now 13 and 7, 6 and 1 since the last 15 and 60. That includes a current five game winning streak. They are 10th in net rating at plus 2.8. Middle of the road, 14th in offense, still strong, 6th in defense, and 538 projects them to win 43 games, which will put them 6th in the Eastern Conference. Small medical note Luke Kennard is now available after his shoulder thing. I think it was an AC joint sprain. And he is he did not play on Saturday, which was his first game he was available i think they'll be pretty patient with him and something i wanted to start with i have a couple different things because i watched their their win over the warriors was that detroit is two points per hundred possessions behind charlotte in net rating but three games ahead of them in the standings and i think that makes their situations feel really different pistons are also playing well i I want to acknowledge that too but it is amazing how you know actually logging those wins being 13 and 7 does make a really big difference and front offices can handle it differently as well and they are on this five game winning streak which started with their win over the rockets includes a win of the, the rockets and the warriors but in the middle of that sandwich are three games against, you know, bad teams all at home. I, I certainly feel more positive about the Pistons. And some of that is, I mean, Drummond was a force in their win against the Warriors. He had a 19% offensive rebound rate all by himself in that game as Detroit ended up with the 28% offensive rebound rate on the game, just beasting on the boards that helped give them extra possessions. They also did well forcing turnovers and exploiting the turnovers that were more unforced that the Warriors made. And something I wanted to talk about, though, was that they have a... I, I like to use the word clarifying for this they have a clarifying stretch of games coming up because it's a lot home and road against capable teams and so that's the type of stretch that really shows you what a team is made of and there are really high stakes here because if they do well then detroit is basically going to look like a playoff team yeah and i think they might already to be honest just because there's not much coming up behind them i mean just to be six games over 500 yeah well what i meant by that was that it could be like not a lock but they could be you know feeling like it's you know if they stay remotely healthy they'll be fine which is great that if they can if they can make it through but yeah i mean yeah they are they are a blake griffin injury away from complete disaster though at any time given how how big his role is there and and then something else i want to mention this is just fascinating detroit's schedule has been very weird so far not only have they played 20 games which is fewer than every other team in the league but their second furthest west game this entire season they played one game in houston and they played a game in chicago they have not gone to the west coast at all so far this year they have two separate west coast trips all the way in 2019 they don't go out there i think until then and they've only played four games against the west so far three of which were at home yeah and they've logged some impressive wins but as mentioned those are games in you know houston 
the Warriors in, in which they've kind of been injured one of the things I really wanted to focus on here when you look at their defensive personnel it's not unbelievable um, you know I, I, I've been very impressed with Bruce Braun what he's been able to do in limited minutes he, he had a nice game against James Harden that uh the athletic uh, James Edwards wrote how awesome is it by the way that a guy named James Edwards is uh covering the Pistons but uh James Edwards wrote a, a nice feature on that where he actually watched film with Bruce uh going through his uh performance against Harden the athletic.com slash cap spice by the way to uh sign up for the awesome coverage at the athletic but other than that there's nobody who jumps out at you as like oh man this guy is, has been unbelievable defensively uh, over the course of his career so I tried to go into the stats to take a look at it and you think okay well when do teams get threes transition that's a big one so yeah maybe they're really good at preventing transition eh, no they're actually in the bottom five with uh, opponent transition fr- frequency part of that probably because uh they are hitting the offensive glass although uh liam is doing some research on that there may not be as much correlation between hitting the offensive glass and transition defense as there used to be this isn't necessarily related to this because we're just talking about the three-point shooting frequency here but they are maybe getting a little bit lucky in terms of opponents transition points per possession and if you're giving up a lot of transition opportunities i would be hard-pressed to believe that oh no our transition defense is really good we're forcing them into really hard shots in transition you know that isn't really i don't think that really happens that often you know you'll get the chase down block at every once in a while but generally if you're giving up a lot of shots in transition those are good shots but you know opponents are not scoring a lot on those I also thought, oh, well, maybe they're forcing the pick-and-roll ball handler to take a lot of shots. Maybe that's what it is, right? That they're sticking really close to three-point shooters in the pick-and-roll. Now, they're pretty much average, you know, in terms of the pick-and-roll ball handler taking a lot of shots. But they're still, you know, sixth-fewest in terms of spot-ups allowed per synergy. And spot-ups include drives to the basket as well, where a guy gets closed out off of a spot-up. And only 24.4% of opponent plays per synergy are catch-and-shoot. So that's in the half-court that sixth best in the league pretty good so it was difficult to find anything and again readers if you all see something or or you just want to comment on because i know we have a lot of smart people who listen to this show on what it is schematically that they're doing to take away three-pointers so well i really was not able to come up with a ton at least in terms of statistical indicators to see what they were doing that's preventing those i mean so now it should be noted that even if they continue to prevent three-pointers and they're also third best at preventing threes that are classified as open or wide open it's good research there from liam but they are getting very lucky in that opponents are shooting only 31 percent on open or wide open threes which again that's not good i mean the league the league median there is about 36 percent. so they are going to be primed for some regression even if they continue to prevent threes as well and, the, and i mean they did this really well against the warriors i mean danny was there anything that they were doing in that warriors game that you were able to see the warriors are kind of a interesting team and in that you know they're so top heavy with their three-point shooting but Kerr was like very upset that they didn't get more threes like blaming himself and stuff like that but did anything stick out to you as far as just you know maybe some of the individual efforts or, or anything else during that game they had some good closeouts I thought they did a nice job there and there weren't as many plays where guys just got straight up lost you know like you you see that sometimes against the Warriors because especially I mean Curry wasn't all the way himself until maybe arguably the fourth quarter but they were largely keeping contact with their guys which is which is a good piece of 
business to do when you can. But no, I didn't see anything particular that really stood out to me defensively that I was going like, oh, they're really taking it away here. So yeah, I, I didn't see a ton there. Let's turn to Indiana, 13 and 10, but three and four since the, the last 15 and 60. Their 3.5 net rating puts them ninth in the NBA. They have the 19th ranked offense despite shooting the ball really well from three. They just are not getting up many attempts. Uh, Jay Michael had a, a long article on how they're not taking that many threes. Uh, and, you know, can you really be a contender that way? But they do have uh, the fourth ranked defense in the association, which, uh, again, I mean, if you were going to talk about this team back when they had Paul George, you're like, man, they lost Paul George. Like, this def- team's defense is not going to be any good. I mean, talking about them as a top five defense defense a year and a half ago with some of the personnel they had would have been shocking and miles turner has been making some strides defensively they project for 45 wins which would put them fifth in the eastern conference what's the latest on victor oladipo after we recorded on thursday he was supposed to come back and then it came out that no in fact he would be out indefinitely which had people really worried and then it was no no indefinitely it's not that well just like no he's still working to get back he's playing but it's just going to take some more time here it sounds like what happened was the six, the sorry, not Sixers. They dealt with this in other situations. The Pacers just were sick of doing the every game. It will he or won't he? So they're just saying he's out indefinitely. And Scott Agnes reported that Oladipo had said before the practice where they kind of determined this, that he was not going to come back until he's 100%, which I fully support, especially considering how important he is and yeah. how. And this has been a be chronic a- thing. I mean, we talked about this, yeah. how, you know, it's kind of like you just keep uh, running down the tank uh, on this and then you you get to the point where you know you just can't play anymore whereas if you you know now you just have to take a long rest and get it back to 100 and then you know they're gonna have to manage it the rest of the year right so i i support that general approach and it was good to get the subsequent reporting from Woj that he's expected to return in the near future and that there are no structural issues because i mean when you when you see somebody's out indefinitely and further updates will be provided when warranted you're like oh god like that could go in a lot of bad directions and they've done overall i think they've done a good job while he's been out they are four and four with a positive net rating. Their third in defense was so slightly better in ranking in defense since he left. And... I've been critical. I, I'm really, really close to the point where I'm just going to say I was wrong. Like, I've been skeptical of their defense for like two years now, but they've done a really nice job. And something that really surprised me is that during this, it's an eight game sample. It's not huge, but they've been forcing turnovers at a really high rate. And I always thought of that as more Oladipo than other guys, though it was obviously a team effort. And this stretch, you kind of think, oh man, they're, they're third in defense without Victor Oladipo. Their offense hasn't been great. It's going to be fluky, but they're forcing turnovers, grabbing defensive rebounds, not really fouling. And teams are shooting 40% from three on them. So they are doing a good job of mitigating those threes and limiting the amount, but it's not like this is all luck or anything like that. I think they've done a nice job defensively and those key elements. I mean, this is kind of a parallel to what I talked about with San Antonio with how their San Antonio's offense is succeeding despite their low effective field goal percentage. Indiana's defense is succeeding despite a high opponent effective field goal percentage because they're doing the other factors very well. I saw them in person uh, on thursday night down in la i misspoke when i said it was lakers denver is actually lakers pacers the old depot didn't play and they just got completely destroyed in the first quarter they were down by 20 looked like they were gonna get completely run out of the building looked like they just had no chance to score uh, against the lakers defense which actually has been very good since acquiring tyson chandler but they did manage to, to fight their way back into it 
a big part of their problem early on was they were just kicking the ball all over the gym and giving up pick sixes to the Lakers and when they stopped doing that they're able to get back into it but ultimately could not muster enough offense and enough good shots against the Lakers I mean they really just kept driving into trouble with JaVale McGee and Tyson Chandler and you know the Lakers play a very conventional pick and roll defense coverage when their five is involved and so I really just hope to see wow Miles Turner he could really be killing that and he got a couple of pick and pop twos I was actually there with my wife and so got a chance to she like knows what a pick and roll is and I was like oh pick and pop they should do more pick and pop with Miles Turner so I got a chance to explain to her what the difference between pick and roll and pick and pop was and and then she's like yeah they're not doing that that much and I'm like no no they're not uh and so even even just having Turner spacing out to three and you know he's taking like under two a game basically I think could have opened up so much more for these guys in that game when the Lakers are doing a pretty good job of protecting the rim with those two big guys and they just never really went to that like it's not part of their scheme and so when they weren't able to get out in transition and make some threes they competed I thought their defense especially in the half court was really good in that game as it has been all season and McMillan deserves so much credit for what he's been able to get out of like Boy and Bogdanovich in particular defensively but I still think they're not going to maximize what they could be unless they're getting the spacing Sabonis is just such an interesting guy to watch in person because unless he's passing it just never looks pretty with him and you know because i had this i guess you could call it an anti-fetish against zoolander guys who can only use one hand although Sabonis he is making baby steps he took a couple of shots with his right hand in this game as well it looks so ugly and then you know i looked up in the third quarter and he's got 18 and 11 and he's got like 70 percent true shooting it's like right <laughs> just about leading the league and so it's it's just he's one of those guys who you know we talked about bembry earlier where okay he looks better and then you look down at the stat sheet and you're like man like that's you know i guess maybe he's not better sabonis is one of those guys where you're watching and like yeah you know he has all these limitations like he's not great at protecting the rim and blah blah and then you know they're a really good defense and he scores incredibly efficiently so uh i was impressed uh with uh what he was able to do in that lakers game tyreek evans i think has not been the difference maker they were hoping for uh, they have played well without him or, or without oladipo i should say but they just have not gotten as much out of out of tyreek his jumper is not looked at as good as it has before they don't really move the ball when he's in there uh and just overall has not looked that comfortable and you know he is not on track i mean if, if you're gonna say you know he took this one-year deal and i'm not sure whether that was at his behest or the team's not to a longer deal but i think the pacers will probably be happy uh that they did not go longer than one year uh, for him let's jump to the miami heat they are nine and 13 three and four since last time we did this their negative 1.2 net rating puts them 20th they are still a weak 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 26th in defense no, 11th in offense 26th in, in offense it's in offense 11th in defense sorry 34 wins would put them 10th in the east they had two big home wins over the weekend they beat the pelicans and the jazz both of them without goran dragic who has missed their last eight games basically the same amount of time as oladipo and oladipo i mean yeah he was an all-nba caliber player last year and dragic was not but they have really missed goran and something else to monitor is that Roddy magruder had an ankle sprain early in their win on sunday against the jazz and while they're the walking wounded i mean tyler johnson's still out Deion waiters is obviously still out John, james johnson's back so if magruder misses time they're gonna have to reshuffle this again which is always a real challenge for them 
them. But it's been kind of an interesting stretch for them. I mean, they had that loss to the Hawks, and then they had these nice two wins. And the Pelicans won. I, I Both of these games, the Pelicans and Jazz, were games that I, I ended up watching at various points during it, partially because it was Hassan Whiteside matching up against two different types of centers. And in the in the Pelicans game, Miami started out incredibly strong. I mean, they were up 20 at the end of the first quarter. They were up 52-21 at some point during the second. New Orleans came almost all the way back despite not making any threes. Miami's offense just, it really started bogging down. Whiteside had some nice moments at various points in the game, but more early than late. And it kind of seemed like they might lose lose the rope, but then they didn't. And then in the Utah game, the Jazz went out to a big lead and then Miami worked their way back. Though they worked their way back, it didn't take the whole game. They got, I think it was close at halftime. And then, and Whiteside had a big game going against Rudy Gobert, 23 and 30 with three blocks. Uh, But it was, he was still negative eight in the win because Miami's second unit did a lot of the heavy lifting, which makes sense because they have a lot of talent. Yeah, there's a a controversial sequence late uh, where Wade got a foul call going into Gobert. Donovan Mitchell wanted a foul call, did not get it. There was, it was your favorite thing where they wait to see whether he made the shot or not uh, to make the call. Now, I still maintain, I mean, if you've ever refereed, and I haven't refereed at a high level, I refereed just like, you know, intramural sports uh, at Tulane, but sometimes it just takes a second to see it i'm not saying that these referees are just like oh we missed it now i'm gonna call it i wouldn't have called it if he made it you know sometimes it's not it sometimes you can even see a guy miss a shot in a weird way that you know doesn't normally happen unless you get fouled and that can kind of make you rerun the contact in your mind as well to kind of make sure and then you make the call so i'm not i i don't hate that as much as you do uh you know, there's really no way to know whether it's a guy being like, well, we're just, I'm only calling it because he missed. And I wouldn't have called it with the exact same contact if he had made it. Oh, can I chip in something? I The Gobert-Wade play was absolutely a foul. He caught him with his offhand, put his left hand right on Wade's hip. It materially affected the layup attempt. And I, I had some Jazz fans get in my mentions about it. And they were kind of like, oh, I'm surprised they called it. It's a foul. Like it, it was absolutely, he hit him. He affected the shot and Gobert was mad about it he had this whole thing and there were some bad calls earlier in the game to be sure i'm not i'm not saying that the jazz were unduly aggrieved but on that specific call i i think if if refs don't call it they should call it more but it was absolutely foul and getting mad about that is a little bit weird so those are two huge wins though for miami I mean, they were seven and 13 and you know i i doubt they were favored in either of those games they didn't look at the line so i mean if they lose those two you're looking at seven and 15 and you know i mean we're a pretty similar situation to what we were talking about with the nets earlier uh but now i think they're kind of back into contact i do think they're going to need for the hornets or the pistons to stumble but it wouldn't shock me if one of those teams do i mean we talked about both charlotte and detroit have some things in their defensive uh shooting percentage allowed uh, that could regress and both of those teams also we're talking about Kemba potentially uh, missing time now with a sprained ankle and uh, Blake Griffin both of those teams are uh very susceptible to injuries and at least that's one thing that Miami has a lot of depth that and also to win those games without Dragic you mentioned has missed uh the eight straight with the knee but you know clearly this Miami team is not going anywhere special this year they might sneak into the playoffs still I wouldn't put it past them but you brought this up but I wanted to talk about it in greater detail is we reference all the time that 30 and 11 close to the 16 17 season after everyone just assumed it was going to be tank city all year and you know they did not ultimately make the playoffs in part due to the fact that the teams that their competition was playing just completely stopped trying like uh, the nets who probably weren't going to win that game anyway like didn't even bring brooke lopez to chicago and like you know they 
it was it was pretty sad but in any event they don't make the playoffs that year but they brought everyone back i think it's worth talking about exactly how it was that that came about it and how potentially different this team might look uh had you know they just finished 20 and 21 that season instead of 30 and 11 yeah so miami did this big spending in 2017 which is they were one of the only teams that that did that that made the big expenditure i mean obviously the the celtics got gordon hayward but in terms of going over the cap putting themselves in the situation and they already had us on white side in the books that deal happened in july of 2016 but then i mean james johnson Dion waiters kelly Winnick and i believe i had already developed the term but those are all to me years not dollars contracts you know you get into those situations especially johnson being older and then Dion waiters i just i thought it was an overpay i've never been the biggest fan of his and well and especially so, knowing though they knew the injury stuff that we yeah. didn't know that's yeah, true I mean, and, and the fact that he'd had you know the, this foot issue and, and like it was really in addition to the ankle and that there actually was like a a, a navicular issue involved as well i mean that was yeah that that was one of the worst i mean that's right up there with the chandler parsons decision and, and even worse because they had him that whole time yeah so there are a lot of pressures in play one of them being the timing there because they waited on gordon hayward gordon hayward took until the 4th of July, until six hours later than it should have been on the 4th of July to make his decision. And just a lot of things were already settled by that point. 2017 was not the free-for-all that 2016 was. And yeah, also, I, the I other think thing that's, that, a, that's a huge point, actually. I mean, because basically, it seemed like what they had to do was, hey, you know what? We're going through this process with Hayward. James Johnson in particular waiters you know those guys in theory could have gotten other offers and so i think to convince them to wait around and just say hey you know what there's only a five percent chance we got hayward but we got to go through the process with him and so hey we're gonna really take care of you guys if you wait around for us and so they probably because of that you would think oh well you know that late in the process they don't have any other options they could be able to get deals on these guys but it's pretty likely that those guys waited because they offered more maybe than those guys guys could have gotten elsewhere and so and then they also decided to bring in Olenek as well and try to and then the, the other part of it too was they got those guys to agree to like these unlikely bonus structures where they could offer Olenek more money and so it was all like because of the timing of it all they had to give out you know worse contracts than they would have otherwise yeah there's sort of a parallel with the West Matthews situation that happened a few years before where they're like well we're That's pursuing this example, we want to do yeah. that and Dallas got burned by that as well and so Miami and they all, one other thing I want to mention before we move on from them they have what will end up probably being a key stretch of the season for them I don't know whether Dragic is going to be available or not they have a six game Western Conference road trip that runs basically through the first half of the month of December and the last five I think of those games are against teams that either will be or could be in the playoffs so I mean they're nine and thirteen now if they come out of that looking good then then this looks a lot better we've said that the bottom of the East is not strong but there's a certain point where you need to do better than treading water and it does get a little bit easier from there eventually but i i want to i mean when we do them in two weeks i think we'll have a very different sense of where miami is bucks here yeah i mean so this has been a different stretch for milwaukee 15 and 7 which is still a great record but it is four and three since the last time we did them plus 9.2 net rating still number one in the league first in offense and they've dropped to 10th in defense 107.6 defensive rating at this point and their 55 projected wins puts them second in the eastern conference one quick medical note ersan Ilyasova missed 
missed sun- Saturday's loss with a mild concussion. And I haven't heard yet if and when they expect him to come back. But them classifying it as mild maybe makes me think that it'll be a shorter absence. Yeah, so the Bucks, uh 8-7 and seven since that 7-0 and start. Uh, since a 43-point blowout of the Blazers, they are 2-3 and three with losses to the Hornets, Knicks, and Suns. The defense, uh, as mentioned, is down to 10th in the NBA. And in that 8-7 and seven stretch, uh, they've maintained second in offense, but have fallen to 21st in defense. And so their issues there are almost exclusively on defense. Now, they still have the sixth best net rating over that time so it's not exactly time uh, to panic but they are 29th in e-field goal percentage uh, allowed which is the polar opposite of that 7-0 start when they had the second best opponent e-field goal percentage but the good news is that the some of the fun the other three four factors in their defensive state almost exactly the same uh number one in defensive rebounding i mean that is just a crazy change and and, uh, they're up there i can't remember they're number one or number two overall this season but i I mean they've been 25th or worse i think basically every year for like the last five years i think the entire kid area in particular and then they had a year in like you know 2009 or something where they were like in the top five and then basically i think for like 10 years they were a below average defensive rebounding team and a way below average defensive rebounding most of the team most of the time and then coach bud and ursa Ilyasova and brooke lopez have completely turned that around and they're also doing a good job of not fouling but you'll remember they used to force all these turnovers under kid now because they have a lopez brother at center and they hang him way back in the pick and roll just like for a long time you remember first portland and then the bulls with robin lopez the center never forced turnovers either because they're just not putting any pressure on pick and roll ball handlers so despite some pretty good personnel for forcing turnovers they don't really do that anymore uh they really are just allowing way too many threes at this point and a lot of that i think is due to their defensive philosophy yeah i mean it's not always going to be as pronounced as it was in that boston game what we did for the nba cast where they were just a one pass away and, and giving up all those shots but they're really zealously trying to avoid shots at the rim and just with the structure of some of their help defense also the rotations aren't super crisp they're giving up more of those and and so they might be in this middle road so they they gave up i think it was the fifth weakest opponent three-point shooting percentage in that big run and now they're the, giving up the third strongest so overall for the season they're middle of the more middle of the road maybe that's where they end up but that is going to be a big question in terms of where this team turns out because if opponents are getting 41 percent of their shots at the three-point arc you're you're going to be dealing with some real high variance nights yeah well hey, if you like teams bombing three-pointers watch a bucks game because they take a, a crap load of threes themselves and we talked about how brooklyn forces teams to take a lot of pick and roll ball handler shots, and the bucks do that also and uh, unlike brooklyn they're allowing you know closer to the league average only 0.87 points per possession so that's good that, that's good that they're forcing teams to take a lot of those shots but then as you mentioned so that you're already hanging the big back in pick and roll but you're also bringing in all this help from the weak side and and leaving shooters because they are just so obsessed with not letting guys get to the rim that not only are they having the big hang back and pick and roll but then they're also having these guys try to dig in and make guys pick up their dribble earlier and then you could just throw the ball to the weak side and get a three and they just they could just stay so much more solid i think that way if you want to do this thing hang having the big hang back that's fine let them shoot that that mid-ranger they got pretty good on ball pick and roll defenders 
players who can do a rear view contest against most teams i think this is also part of why they've only played the celtics that one game but this is why they match up so badly against the celtics offense because the celtics aren't ever going to get to the rim anyway so now you're just giving the celtics a chance to get wide open threes without really penetrating which they've been struggling to get and then the Celtics can just bomb threes down their throat all day with relatively minimal amounts of, of penetration. You know, they're not getting all the way to the rim. They're just getting to the free throw line. But so many guys are crashing in that you can just throw it. And the Celtics do do a good job of seeking out the three and moving the ball so a lot of this is going to be stuff to watch with this team i mean they are doing a really good job of keeping teams out of transition uh they're allowing the fewest transition possessions per game in the league 14.5 uh per synergy uh, what have they been doing at backup center since uh henson went out our dear friend thon maker is back in the rotation he's playing about 12 minutes a game and this is b- bananas he's shooting 35 percent from the field but has a true shooting percentage about 54 percent. and how you do that is you take two-thirds of your shots from three and I think he's making his free throws as well. And two thirds of his shots have been three so far this year. And so that's crazy in and of itself. But again, small sample size here. He, he's shooting 11 threes per 100 possessions. And if you remember an hour and a half ago in this podcast, I talked about D'Angelo Russell's three point frequency. Thon Maker over this season is at a pretty similar rate to D'Angelo Russell, which is insane. And yeah, he's doing it over a smaller sample. So it's extrapolating, but it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And Thon, now part of this is propped up by playing more garbage time than Henson. And they played about the same number of minutes out on 6.9 net rating, uh, Henson 0.7 net rating. So they haven't really missed much with Henson out, it seems like. Let's turn to the New York Knickerbockers. 8 and 16, but hey, not bad. 4 and 4 since the last 15 in 60. They are still 26th in the NBA with a negative 6.3 net rating. They've continued to be better than I, I thought they might. Uh, they support the 22nd ranked offense and 28th ranked defense that's not so good uh and they project for 12th in the conference uh, with 25 wins uh, what's the latest on them in terms of just some injury stuff so trey burke suffered a knee sprain on saturday it's already been announced as we record this on sunday evening that he will not play on monday and in that same game on saturday courtney lee was finally cleared but he did not play he got a dnpcd so we'll see how that goes moving forward and you brought up the knicks are four and four since last 1560 they're four and two since the day before thanksgiving and those four wins are against milwaukee memphis new world Orleans and Boston. They did get just demolished by the Sixers, but then their other two losses in that same time period were closer. They lost by four against the Blazers and by seven against Detroit. That Detroit game was never particularly close, but I mean, a seven point loss for a team that's eight and 16 and has won four of their last six is not bad. And something briefly I wanted to mention, Emmanuel Moutier, who last year was on the short list of like the most destructive players in the league when he was on the Denver Nuggets, is having a pretty good year. He had those defensive possessions in a couple of their recent wins. He also had some big free throws. And I think that was the win against New Orleans. And 16-6 PER, true shooting about 56%, 22% usage shooting 17 of 48 on threes with 35% after being 32% each of his first three seasons. And because they're using some of these different lineups, they're playing him with other ball handlers. He ha- Moutier has the lowest assist and turnover rates of his career. Yeah, a- another reminder that it can take a, a very long time for point guards. Here's a question. Yeah. How does e- how does Ethan's chestnut of fat as potential in disguise work when the guy gets heavier and becomes more successful at the same time? <laughs> 
<laughs> or is that more of like the David Wells theory that certain players actually benefit from more heft? Yeah, I, I think that works a little better in a uh, a less athletic sport like baseball, uh, shall we say. Kevin Knox, uh, since he returned for injury, started three games, played 14 in total, uh, but has only played 12 games since uh, he started playing significant minutes. Uh, again, the stats are not particularly impressive. 9.7 points a game in 21.2 minutes, 36% from the field and 35% from three. So overall for the season, he's at 34% on twos, which is of course completely atrocious. Hasn't been particularly effective on the glass either, which if he's going to be someone who's going to play the four and he has the size to do that, probably not the mentality at this point or maybe ever. And there are not a lot of guys who where you're like, you know, I mean, Andrew Wiggins is the prime example of this where the was oh man he's so athletic but you know you don't really see it in like his steals and blocks and rebounds i don't really recall it and again shout out to listeners if you can think of someone i'm all ears here who you know was considered really athletic at the start of his career but didn't it didn't show up at all in the box score and then later in his career it did and so you know knox may have a little bit of wiggins disease now that doesn't mean he can't be a talented scorer in time but he certainly and he's gonna play for this team you know he's a part of their future but the thought that he had this great summer league which even statistically was probably a little overrated he had some big games but wasn't very efficient that he was going to come in and play really well as a rookie you know he is a very very long way away which you know he's a really young guy but it's going to take some time for him there has not been hardly any reason for excitement with him so far this season i have i have one crazy knock stat okay he's taking 14 percent of his shots from floater range and he's making 14 percent of his shots from floater range yeah and you'll recall that was something that was a selling point that he had this floater in his game and it did look good on film but like with trey young especially when you're moving have to move faster you got the guy behind you contesting out of pick and roll you have to speed that shot up it's going to take him some time i think he can get there to where that's uh, an effective shot for him not one that you want to be a primary diet but something that he can go to if he needs to it's going to be a while there if you look at how he's getting his shots 35 percent out of spot ups in terms of his possessions and 37th percentile there you know not great but but not terrible and that's probably the best part of his game at, at this point he does have a quick release you know the 35 percent from three is, is totally adequate for a rookie but you know then he's also taking a lot of spot up long twos where I mean, he really he shouldn't ever even be standing somewhere where he's taking a spot up long two you know he should be out behind the arc and he hasn't really learned to do that yet uh and then transition he'll get some threes the pick and roll ball handling he's done some of that but hasn't been able to be efficient there so uh, a long way to go uh, for Knox uh should we move on to the magic one other quick thing I want to mention because Knox's PER is is struggling he's below 10 right now is that he has been a really bad rebounder I mean he's so yeah he plays a mix of the three and the four but he's at 12.5 percent defensive rebound rate below eight as a total one and I went back and looked and at Kentucky last year they had a super weird combination of players so not all of that is on Knox and he played some like at the two even though he's six foot nine because that team was super weird he his rebound percentage was below 10 there as well so if that's you know, there's a line between it being not a strength and being this big of a weakness but from a team building perspective that is something you need to consider especially if there's this theory that he's going to be a power forward all right now uh why don't we move on to the magic sure so the magic are 11 and 12 they're three and four since last 15 and 60 including some close losses on the west coast they are negative 1.7 in net rating which puts them 21st they are an 
identical 21st in offense and 16th in defense, which is much better than last year for sure. And they're they're projected to have 35 wins, which would put them ninth in the Eastern Conference. You know, like the the current projections just have it where Miami falls off a cliff or not, not falls off a cliff. They just never come back from the cliff. And so, yeah, they would they would actually finish just out of the playoffs in terms of seeding. But Wizards, well, we'll talk about that later. So we, we did their game for the NBA cast. I was at their loss to the Warriors as well game. Both of those were absolutely games they could have won. I wouldn't go so far as to say they should have, but they could have for sure. And well, I, I think especially against the Warriors, Aaron Gordon had to leave yeah. with the back issue and then he didn't play against the Blazers and I thought he did a nice job one-on-one against Kevin Durant early in that game uh, even even when he was limited and so obviously KD went off like crazy for 49 points on them so you could make the argument with that being close on the end that maybe the loss of Gordon is what ended up losing them that game yeah and we've talked about Vooch's great season before we don't do most improved players in our preliminary words but he's had a really great year Terrence Ross is a wonderful success story as well off their bench and we'll talk in in like a trade deadline preview at some point about how they make the decisions on this team at the deadline like they're just a huge pivot point in the league because if they want to take on money they can but if they don't want to then that narrows the field of teams that that really would and because Vooch and Ross are so successful this year they can actually like do a different type of trade it's not just like somebody bad for money like it's more like the Jeremy Lin when we were talking about except Vooch has been way 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 better and I also want to give Orlando credit because this year they've done a really good job of keeping teams out of transition. Yeah. And one of our interesting things that we looked at, although this started to wane in Charlotte, was you know, what level of Cliffordization would this team reach, right? What were the hallmarks of a Steve Clifford team? Didn't turn it over on offense. Well, that's that's come across, actually. They're sixth in turnover rate offensively this year. And given how few creators they have, that's really quite an accomplishment because generally when you don't have creators you got guys trying to squeeze into spaces that aren't really there you have guys who are inexperienced but you know the combination of Vucevic and Augustine as a pick and roll combo like those guys have done a solid job taking care of the ball so so that's translated the other thing that they really did well was taking away opponent transition you mentioned they've been very effective there although again they've maybe been a little bit lucky in terms of just the points per possession they're allowing it in transition although being second in the nba in terms of transition possessions allowed per game per synergy is definitely great so even if that regresses it hopefully won't hurt them too much but then the other two aspects of a clifford team haven't really translated yet they're pretty much average in defensive rebounding and they don't have a great rebounding team you know mo bamba is kind of a skinny rookie they don't play another big very very often their guards you know it's hard to look at someone who's a a great rebounder uh, on their guard line Aaron Gordon has always kind of been you know an okay rebounder but not you know amazing considering his athletic gifts so about average I think that's solid and then Clifford teams also avoided fouling and they're again they're pretty much just average in terms of that but when you consider the number of young guys they're playing the fact their backup center is a rookie that's actually probably pretty good when you consider what their personnel is that you know that they've got another slow center in Vooch who's around the basket that they can potentially give up penetration so we have seen Clifford have an effect on this team to be sure and you know these guys have a positive net rating I mean they've actually gotten oh no I'm sorry I was looking at the wrong wrong line there I mean so negative 1.7 so that's probably right on line for 37 38 wins I would not favor them to make the playoffs at this point in time but they probably are the team you know and we'll see what happens to Miami but they are probably the team that's best positioned to capitalize if Charlotte or Detroit were to falter yeah it's between 
between them, Washington and Miami, and we'll, we'll see how that works out. But Orlando, yeah, I, I, there, there's a lot to like here. And John Isaac is just such a, a fun, fascinating defensive player because he gets into things. Like he tries to contest dunks and I like his instincts as a help defender. He still has a long way to go, just like all these guys. And offensively, I'm not a believer yet, but well, well again, I will say this a, on, on his offense. I mean, I, the last two games of them that we saw that Warriors game and that Blazers game, you know, I thought he did show some signs. He was more aggressive from three, he hit a couple of above the break, uh, got into the post uh, for a couple of plays. So I, I thought, uh, again, you know, when it comes to shooting, I thought he'd been hesitant a little bit, like the shot just hadn't looked particularly smooth. And at least, it, you know, it looked better. Again, you know, is that just self-fulfilling prophecy? The ball goes through the net. So I am like, oh yeah, wow, he looked really good shooting that. You know, tough to say, uh, but at least that's better than just looking totally hesitant and like bricking the shots really badly. So I, I think it's going to take a long time. You know, is he ever going to be more than kind of an average offensive player on as a combo forward? You know, I'm not sure I would project that, frankly. Uh, but, you know, if he turns into just sort of like an evolutionary Thaddeus Young, who's like, you know, a better shot blocker, that's not a bad player. You know, I mean, if you really th- think about it, he was drafted number six and he's already a better three-point shooter than Young. You know, if he could be that type of a player, you know, Thaddeus Young has had a very long career. He's been a starter for 10 years. If he could be that type of player, but maybe just a little bit better shooter, a little better shot blocker uh, like that's a pretty darn good player for a long time even if you know i don't i wouldn't say that isaac looks like he has like big star potential to me at this point but i think he could be a good player for a long time i think so too and his defensive potential is is tantalizing still and i wonder i think he can bounce a little bit between the four and the five and they have the personnel long term to probably do that but we'll just have to see what orlando prioritizes who they go with but we can move on to the philadelphia 76ers they are 17 and 8 6 and 1 since the last time we did this 11th in net rating at plus 2.4 11th in offense which is i would say i'm surprised in a positive way there and then i'm disappointed overall that they're 12th in defense at 107.9 but that gets into one of the things that we can talk about which is that their backup center spot needs some improvement yeah it does and the good news is there will be guys like that available on at the very least the buyout market potentially the trade market we i was remiss i think in our defensive player of the year conversation before i really started looking at it to have left and beat out but when you look at their defensive rate when he's been on the floor they've been awesome it's just they've been getting killed without him uh and it's looking like since the butler trade that it's kind of becoming what we thought i mean we mentioned the defense with him beat off the floor the, the lack of depth but the core four of Simmons, Embiid, Reddick, and Butler, 17 net rating. That's not quite as good as that Ballyhood starting lineup from last year, which was the, the best high minute unit in the league. It was like a 21 net rating, but still very solid. And Ben Simmons, after a little bit of a slow start with Butler, they're starting to find better ways to use him. Uh, he is now averaging 18 points a game and shooting 60% from the field over his previous seven. And unlike with some players, at least when Ben Simmons is shooting 60% from the field, you know it's probably a little more real because it's not just unsustainably hot jump shooting you know he's just not taking any jump shots (laughs) so uh and in terms of finding ways to use him i watched a a portion of their game against the grizz today and 
they used Simmons a lot as a screener for Jimmy Butler and when Simmons was being guarded by Jaron Jackson they didn't want to switch that they wanted to play conventional pick and roll defense and that was relatively effective the other nice thing is that I think Jimmy Butler can be a lot more effective on this team in some ways now there is the question of all right where does Ben Simmons stand when you're running a Butler and Embiid pick and roll but Simmons could also maybe go screen for Redick on the weak side and so then his guy is got to be available to help on reddick if he comes free so there are ways to create some gravity with simmons you know he's still an effective finisher out of the dunker spot but the reason i think that butler can look better in pick and roll is i think butler against some of the best teams in particular he's not unbelievable as an iso guy especially off the dribble sometimes if he has a smaller player i think he could be real good just overpowering that guy but against larger guys he's not blindingly quick especially off the dribble you know he's real good triple threat if he catches it and can go into like a jab step complex and get guys moving around use their momentum against them just straight off the dribble though it's a little harder for him to get great shots he was coming back from injury but i think we saw that against the rockets in the playoffs last year in particular but if you set a screen with joel Embiid unless you're very late clock you're not switching that because joel is just too good i think for a lot of teams in the post you know maybe the rockets would still switch that but most teams are going to say no we can't get caught in a mismatch with Embiid, and so now butler has the advantage of attacking a traditional pick and roll coverage and he's become a very good pick and roll operator he's got solid euro steps he can get to the rim get fouled get guys on his back he's got a a good game in mid-range as well and so if you have to play him more conventionally at the end of games i thought that you know he was pretty effective against the grizz and there of course conventional pick and roll coverage with uh gasol and jackson in the fourth quarter i'm excited to see how this works out and as they figure out other players to fit in with these lineups wilson chandler did miss their win against memphis with a quad issue sounds like he might be back for the next game because philly's yeah. fortunate they don't play again until wednesday so they have some time to sort this out and but by we'll the way they started Bascala at the four yep uh ended up playing him with the uh, off the bench the four as well but they closed with tj mcconnell uh, and he was actually plus 16 in 31 minutes markel fultz still no word on him by the way it should probably update y'all on that he is continuing uh, to meet with specialists uh, and try to get an understanding uh, of what it is uh, that's ailed him. i mean Woj's article on it said that he is he's just straight up said that Fultz has lost the ability to shoot long jumpers again I mean like he can't even shoot it at at this point like there's something either psychological or physical that's like preventing him from shooting it now so that's all got to get worked out you know there is talk that he's going to get traded uh but this you know this whole health thing has got to resolve before then um anything else you wanted to say on these guys yeah one quick note Ben Simmons currently has a sky high free throw attempt rate 47 percent so that's 7.4 free throws and 16 basically field goal attempts and he's improved his free throw shooting a little bit 61 percent this year 56 percent last year but that's another way that he can provide value i mean yeah it'd be great if he made 70 or more percent of his free throws but getting guys in foul trouble creating mismatches making guys freak out he he can do well there i don't expect it to stay at 47 for for the year but it is certainly a strength of his game yeah i really liked in the fourth quarter uh, i counted they had four system plays where they either got fouled or were able to score jj reddick had a backdoor simmons where they threw it to the elbow and mcconnell did what would normally just be a dummy cut to the basket and but he did it hard because tj mcconnell does everything hard and simmons was able to find him with a step uh, on his defender i want to say it was conley for a layup simmons did a hard post up on jaron jackson who jackson is way bigger than him but simmons just snuck and ducked in on him when they were trying to post up a beat on gasol also worth noting marcus just continues to frustrate the post-up bigs that he goes against it 
Embiid was only four out of 13 in this game he did get to the foul line a little bit but four out of 13 with four turnovers for a guy who's averaging 27 a game that's a pretty good day at the office also worth noting Joel Embiid currently leads the NBA in free throws free throws attempted and defensive rebounds so pretty interesting there uh, on the leaderboard for him why don't we turn to Toronto now let's do it the Raptors are in east best 20 and 4 7 and 0 since the last 15 and 60 second in net rating in the whole NBA at plus 8.7 third in offense and a strong seventh in defense 538 projects them to win 61 which would be not only first in the east but first in the overall NBA now that the Warriors have lost a couple games including one to the Toronto Raptors and one small piece of injury news Kyle Lowry missed Saturday's game against the Cavs with a sore back I like many had theorized that that was maybe just precautionary because the Cavs aren't good and so you might as well just sit him in that game but he is currently being described as questionable for their game on Monday against Denver which is a much more challenging game so maybe this is a little bit more serious we'll just kind of have to see so it, it had been long since time for me uh, to do a, a look at Pascal Siakam currently leading the NBA shooting 70.6% on two-pointers. His 697 true shooting also leads the NBA. The three-pointer, he has not been a huge threat. He's 15 out of 43. So he's basically taking two a game. Uh, 42% of those come from the corner and he's hitting 44% on those. So he's shooting in the mid thirties, but uh, above the break, not really a threat yet uh taking only again 2.2 three point times per 36 minutes that's actually down a little bit from last year but you remember he shot 20 percent last year so that's good but the three-pointer i mean that's what a lot of people talked about with him but that's not the sexy part of his game we know what he is defensively but his passing has been really impressive he's got 58 assists on the season so that's just shy of three per 36 minutes but for your four man that's not bad and what i really liked is in going and looking at film of his assists i'd say probably two-thirds of them are really like solid value-added plays it's not just all right i caught the ball at the elbow and i'm gonna take a dribble and hand off to this guy and then he hits a jumper or all right i'm holding the ball here and someone comes off the screen and i just throw it to him and he, and he shoots a jump shot these are plays where you know a lot of times if he's rolling to the basket he'll make the catch uh there's one where he he caught the ball right at the charge circle he had three guys on him and basically twisted around in the air and threw it all the way up to the top to serge ibaka for a three knew exactly where ibaka was that was a great decision uh he had a play where he's able to drive from up top through a lefty pass to van fleet in the corner uh off an offensive rebound for a three quick post entry on a seal for ibaka again you know that's not that's a play where you have to take advantage immediately when the guy gets the seal he was able to do that another thing he did which i thought was really impressive was he was able to beat his man and then he threw kind of the early pass i chris duhan uh, hilariously was the guy who i thought did the most of this where you get penetration and just as the help defender is making his first couple of steps towards you you throw the pass you just throw it earlier almost from the free throw line to uh, the guy for a layup he did that to ibaka uh, like just that quick pass that totally taught the defense by surprise that looked great uh he had a found Lowry on a back door like while he was starting while Siakam was starting his own drive to the basket you know usually guys will put their head down and kind of not see someone in those situations through a nice pass to Danny Green on a corner three so these are real plays here uh and he's also just been devastating in transition 3.5 possessions per game 1.3 points per possession he's 43 out of 56 in transitions and so you really 
like he's got enough gravity here where he's really like all right this guy's coming downhill we gotta devote some resources here to really stopping the ball with this guy so i, I know i've droned on for quite a bit here but here's my comparison for him. i want to see if you because people have been talking about him as draymond green i don't think he's like draymond green at all because he's just a much better finisher than draymond and, and he also doesn't have like the heft or the quick feet or the hands of draymond I mean, he's, he's a good defender but he's not draymond i think he's actually like a really poor man's Giannis. that's my comparison for him huh it's funny because i i was thinking about in terms of physically because he's just a little bit smaller than Giannis. that i mean this part of like Giannis's wingspan is part of what makes him special i mean siakam is there too something else that i think has has struck me this year with siakam and i want to see if this continues because i think it will is that he's been getting fouled a lot more and so over the very honest like perhaps exactly that's what i'm getting at here and so with his passing and capability and so siakam didn't really get fouled that much early in his career wasn't i mean wasn't nearly the kind of threat with the ball in his hands so you had all those things coming together that was something that improved a little bit last year but has gone to another level this year and so for siakam his free throw attempt rate has doubled but when you look at it it's also over the course of the season so he was quieter in this element in december or sorry not in december in october in the first month of the season but since november started he's getting about four free throw attempts per game which is great and he's making them i mean he's so for the season siakam is now at 78 percent career 70 so but he can be bringing that up by taking a lot more and making a lot more and so i'm not sure that he's going to get to stay to this degree as a foul drawer the whole rest of the season but if he can be even close to that it's another one of those foundational pieces of a successful offense player you brought up the passing and my most important takeaway with siakam this year so far has been how the game that we're seeing from him now especially when compared to his rookie year but even to last year it fits so much better as a as a piece of a successful elite team because he can he can find the open guy better teams have to be more aggressive about guarding him he's a force in transition and so he fits in well with this kind of idealized version of the raptors with Kawhi, with kyle lowry with danny green and Abaka's having a better year than I anticipated. There's still other iterations. Ananobi's having a worse year than I anticipated. But having that built-in like kind of level from Siakam, even if it's not quite this, gives them so much more optionality for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think his fit with Ibaka in particular is really good because the, the way he's scoring is so interesting. The reason I likened him to Giannis, he's nowhere near that level of physical player. I mean, but he is kind of just, especially with space around him, able to kind of physically overwhelm guys straight line drives and then if he gets cut off he's able to spin back and cover enough ground and be strong and long enough to finish he's also really improved his touch around the rim as well on non-dunks uh so he deserves a lot of credit for that as well and to be able to shoot with both hands around the rim but you know a lot of it is just getting downhill and then using his physical tools to beat defenders who may be a little bit overwhelmed and the type of play types he's doing is very interesting i mean on spot ups you know i mentioned he's not shooting well on threes but he's able to attack any kind of closeout or even a non-closeout he's able to just you know go into the lane and if there's spacing around him he's able to get ahead of steam up and finish you know a lot of times he's being guarded by a smaller defender if there's some type of a switch uh he's well over a point per possession on post-ups 92nd percentile on post-ups he's 99th percentile on isolations and you know and these are kind of you know one or two per game on some of these but they add up pick and roll ball handler 99th percentile there if he just gets a screen usually from a smaller player and then is able to attack so he's able to do enough off the dribble in varied ways that they find ways for him to attack now 
he's only 17 percent usage can he increase that i think he can some but he's also a guy where his skill level is not high enough and he's not that athletically overwhelming that if you're really guarding him with a good defender i don't think he can beat that type of a guy but you know it's not like Giannis where he's going to have the physical advantage on just about anybody but as long as he is able to pick his spots to where he really has this advantage off the dribble or putting his back to goal and physically overwhelming his guy and he has the skill level to do that and then he's been able to find guys when they collapse on him i mean he has been a very valuable player and he's of course a solid defender so i'm interested to see what the next steps are going to be for him he's a very interesting player and i want to see what his ceiling ends up being this is his age 24 season all right we did it dude we got one more team the washington wizards i kind of thought we were going to stop just to make it liam's fault but the wizards are (laughs) that's also partially because i just don't want to talk about the wizards that is what that is what we call that is a callback i think when it's been like over two hours you you could use a callback i think we've been recording for two hours and 15 minutes now yeah that's like five television episodes so i think it totally works So the Wizards are 9 and 14. They are a much better 4 and 4 since the last 15 and 60. Still 25th in net rating, negative 5.2. 20th in offense, a putrid 26th in defense. Projected for 39 wins, which would put them 8th in the Eastern Conference now. And where we have to start, because it happened after the last time we recorded on news type stuff, Dwight Howard is. So there was all this stuff about his piriformis. And I don't exactly know what the status of that is, but he's undergoing surgery on his spine, on the L4, L5 discs in his spine and there have been a couple different timelines thrown out there one was eight weeks one was two to three months and i wanted to kind of lay out what that means from a practical perspective so two months is the early side of this that is basically until the trade deadline and that is about game 51 of their season. So we're in the early 20s now. So they'll play another 28 or so. And then if it goes to three months because of the all-star break, they would be a game 61. So then they would only have 20 games left in the season. And it is a really challenging set of decisions for Ernie Grunfeld. I'm going to, at some point in the next couple of days, have a big Grizz- uh, sorry, not Grizzlies, Wizards piece coming out for the Athletic. I've been working on it. It's not done yet, but it's, it's in the process. And why this is so hard is because they have found some success success with other options like Markeith is playing backup center and doing really well but this creates a positional imbalance that is it's easy to get somebody who's kind of like a replacement player level but I think the Wizards need somebody better than that to succeed yeah, and waiting until the buyout market is going to be difficult they also well still... and also like would a buyout guy go there yeah you're going to get playing time but you're on a team that might not make the playoffs like that's a lot of times for buyout guys that's what you're looking for well and also a team that is unlikely to have the resources to resign you if things go well also uh and, and i you uh were skeptical of me saying that dwight was going to pick up that player option when i think he was suffering the back issues early on and like right as he was coming back i was like oh yeah he's pick up that player option hey yeah, he's gonna pick up that player option. oh Certainly. can i give you a theory yes so i i've i've been perplexed for a while about the, the the way that the negotiations happened, how Dwight Howard became a wizard and signed for five million, signed for the mid-level exception. Because usually when a guy gets a buyout, especially when Brooklyn didn't really have that much in play, you know, saving them money really did help. It helped facilitate the trade that got them the first round pick from Denver. But usually a guy t- leaves less money on the table and takes less from his new team. And my theory is, so I've been wondering why the hell that happened. And I think what this was, was Dwight Howard's representation playing three-dimensional chess and and realizing that what they should be trying to maximize was not his 2018-19 salary, but his 2019-20 salary. Yes. 
And so maybe whether whether they knew about this stuff or not, getting him a player option that's worth more than five million dollars is a real value added. And so if he had done the whole take the minimum, get the minimum thing, even if it wasn't as extreme as this year has been, he's really ma- he, he and his representation really maximized that element of this equation. And that might be why it all happened. And uh, the Wizards management did not maximize that element of this equation, especially given the fact that I have no idea where an offer of that magnitude was coming for Howard outside of them so you mentioned they have been playing a little bit better though they have been riding the ship it seems like some lineup changes some just voluntary some involuntary have been a catalyst for that to some degree right I think one of the big ones is making Markeith Morris a backup and largely using him as the second unit center because they have no centers and that has really activated Keith he's scored 20 or more points three times in those seven games in 15 or more five times more points than shots in every game but in philly you know he was awful in that game but it happens i mean guy guy has more points than shots in six out of seven games and be pretty happy with it and during that same time they're four and three with home wins over the clippers pels rockets and nets that overstates it a little bit because ad missed that game with the hip issue and then chris paul missed the game because he's been hurt for a while but i think the wizards like when you watch them they've looked more competitive i mean they had that crazy game where they beat the rockets when harden scored 54 or whatever it was and all of their losses all their losses were blowouts but they were all in the road against good teams so i'm not going to be as freaked out about that as like you know just beating losing to some scrubby team so i think that there's something in this and then it was also interesting that when they in the game against brooklyn in when they didn't put Ubre in the starting lineup they brought in thomas sadaransky and so sadaransky came in he played 26 minutes was plus nine scored seven points and i just think this gets them in a little bit of a better flow and markeith morris doesn't bring much to the table when you consider the other offensive options in their first unit but they needed second unit scoring in the worst way and he can he can do that if you tell marky morris you're gonna get a bunch of shots he can he's like where do i sign up and so he has done a really nice job there the schedule uh, upcoming is interesting they've struggled on the road where they are only two and nine seven and five uh, at home maybe this is one of those teams where because sometimes it'd be like yeah you know going on the road can really like galvanize a team like probably this team like since they all hate each other it's just they're gonna play even worse on the road because they're just gonna get sick of, of one another uh but their road schedule has been difficult i mean they, they had that tough trip to the western conference that really started ringing the alarm bells early in the season their next three road games though are the knicks atlanta and cleveland they better not lose some of those but you know, at nine and 14 they're kind of in that mix of teams now they've righted the ship enough that i mean all they have to do is play kind of slightly over 500 ball i mean that that's i think this group is capable of doing that if it, they can get decent play from john wall and for john wall even in that houston game at times you know you could see him bring it for individual defensive possessions and i think actually houston is a better matchup for them than a lot of teams because part of their problem is overall effort and communication and houston as good as they are with james harden and Harden put up that 54 on them houston is not going to be like moving the ball moving all over the place forcing you to make a bunch of decisions in terms of executing defensively communicating especially late in games you know harden's going to dribble the air out of the ball and then he's going to make his move and you're either going to stop him or not and the wizards don't have amazing individual defenders but their communication is a lot worse than their individual talent defensively so they houston is actually not as bad of a matchup for them uh, as you might think and then especially you know houston's not great in transition the wizards 
are still good in transition so uh this will be a, an important stretch here and i'm just so curious to see whether they do anything to address the, the center position or not any because with the tax they're not going to want to take on more money i mean remember like they're trying to hold down to only having 13 players for as long as they legally can to just you know nickel and dime below the tax as much as possible so even just signing another player for the rest of the season it seems like something they wouldn't necessarily want to do so if they're going to make a trade they're going to make a trade to save them money to get better like i mean it is very low hanging fruit to get better if they could just get someone in but with the amount they're already paying the fact that you know okay maybe what are we going to do we're going to get the a seed if we if we sign some center you know it doesn't really seem worth it to them but there is really low hanging fruit for them to upgrade should they choose to to vote even a slight amount of resources to that it just seems like ted leon says and perhaps understandably so is kind of at the end of his rope with that yeah it, it, and it's a challenging set of decisions for him in their front office and you mentioned it but i want to reiterate it it's striking every time i watch them how john wall is absolutely the bellwether for the wizards on both ends of the floor if he gives a crap on defense they can do a pretty good job if they're scatterbrained if he's not really caring they can lose to anybody and so he will probably define this season i mean if, if he if he cares more often then they can go through it but if he gets mired in some sort of effort-based or morale-based slump then th- this could turn and so the next two weeks will be pivotal but really i think the whole month of december and then if they're still in the mix at that point even though dwight will still be out a lot longer then th- there's just going to be this separation and we've talked about how the bottom of the east playoff picture is not that strong so if they can stay in then they can kind of survive and just stick around well we are at the end of our rope and we are not going to stick around any longer but this is some old school dunk time this is almost two and a half hours but we had our caffeine beforehand thanks danny for uh muddling through your sore throat here i actually did better than muddle through that wasn't the word i was looking for there but that was great and we're gonna skip the promos here because we have talked enough and we'll be back tomorrow night till then